You're listening to the Trace Church Rock Rimmon podcast. I feel like I'm at the movies. Hey, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Let me hear from you. How are you doing this morning? Anybody excited to be at church? I'm excited to be at church. Hey, uh, we decided to do this new series called End of the World because likely this conversation has come up for you in the last six to nine months, right? I mean, especially if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you have probably landed in a conversation where the end of the world came up. It could have been in the context of the rapture or the second coming of Jesus or the apocalypse or the the tribulation. It could have come up in a lot of different contexts. And the reason we believe this is coming up so often is because right now there are just some crazy things. There are some crazy things that are appearing in front of us, things that we're observing. We're all observing this together. Uh, Maybe we don't need to look any further than COVID, right? In the last six to nine months, our lives feel like they are coming unglued. It feels like everything is coming unhinged. Not to mention all the different records that are being set around our nation right now, right? You think about the hurricane season. It's the re- a record-setting hurricane season or the wildfires in California, record-setting wildfires. It could be the fact that across the world right now, there are record-setting heat waves that are coming through. And so we've almost been wired as Christians, for those of us that ascribe to Jesus, that have been following Jesus, we've almost been wired as Christians that when we hear these things, when these things come up in conversation, it naturally lends us to ask the question, are these signs of the end times? Are these signs of the end times? But what list are we pointing to? Like if we're saying that, if these are potentially signs of the end times, what list are we pointing to? Because if we're saying there's signs somewhere, then we're referring back to something. And so what is it that we're referring to? Because there must be a list somewhere that talks about the different signs that we are potentially observing right now that could be signs of the end times. And maybe your mind, maybe your mind immediately goes to the book of Revelation, But you would be surprised to find today that more often than not, what people are referring to when they're mentioning signs of the end times is the book of Matthew, and specifically something that Jesus spoke in Matthew 24, which is exactly where we're going to land today. Let Stu figure out the TV for us really quick. Everybody give it up for Stu. We love Stu. I was waiting on that slide a second ago and it just didn't come, but we, we keep going, right? That's a sign. No, it's not a sign. All right. Matthew 24. If you've got your Bibles today, we would strongly encourage you to open them up or turn them on. We're going to be in this text. We are going to dig deeply in this text today in Matthew 24, but it's going to take me a few moments before I get there. But here's what I want to suggest. What if, listen to me, what if, what if we potentially misinterpreted the words of Jesus? What if in Matthew 24, what many have looked at historically as a passage of scripture where Jesus is talking about the end of the world, what if we actually misinterpreted Jesus and he's actually not even talking about the end times at all? Today, I'm going to suggest that if we've gotten that wrong, and I'll go ahead and show you my cards, I believe we have, that the implications for getting that wrong are much greater and dire than you may think. But before we dive into that conversation, I want to set some ground rules for us, okay? I want to set some ground rules for us when it comes to this conversation, because when it comes to eschatology, which is just the study of end times, you're going to hear me use that word a lot today. The word eschatology means the study of end times. When it comes to eschatology, it has brought a lot of division to the church of Jesus. 
It has brought a lot of division. Now, I don't mind debate. Listen to me. I welcome debate. I think debate can be a very healthy thing for the church. But when it comes to certain areas, and I would put eschatology in one of these areas, when debate becomes divisive, I believe it becomes a very unhealthy thing for God's church. And so if I say anything today, if I suggest anything today that you just do not agree with, like, that's fine. Like, I welcome that debate to the table. I'm not here to try to convince you to believe exactly what I believe. I'm here to show you that there may be more ambiguity. Listen to me. There may be more ambiguity where others have taught certainty. And we're going to talk a lot about that. But let me continue with some ground rules really quick for us. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, then you've likely landed here today with a position Right? We all come to the table with our traditions. You've been taught certain things. I've been taught certain things. And you might have a temptation. You might be tempted to take your traditions and bring those traditions to the text, to the Bible, to the Word of God, and allow your traditions to tell the text where to go based on something that you've been previously taught. I'm going to caution you against that. I'm going to ask that for this morning, if for no other time, but this morning, if you would set your traditions aside and simply allow the text to breathe, allow the text to speak for itself. Because depending on your tradition, and we all have them, you potentially will bring your tradition to the table and allow the text to go where, you tell, where your tradition tells it where to go. We call this eisegesis. If you go, go to Bible college or seminary, there's this thing called eisegesis, and it's where we take all of our experiences, we take our preconceived notions, we bring that to the text, and it causes the text to go somewhere where maybe the Bible never intended it to go. Now, what we want to do as good students, right, to be a disciple of Jesus to me, means to be a pupil of Jesus, to be a pupil, a student of the Word of God. That's where we should always land, and we want to exegete. We want to take from the text what it originally meant. You've heard me say this several times, that a verse can never mean what it never meant. A verse can never mean what it never meant. In other words, the original intent of the author at the time it was written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that is the only meaning that text can have. Here's the last thing that I'll say for some ground rules. This is a sexy subject. Kind of sounds weird, isn't it, to talk about it? It's a sexy subject from the Bible, but it is. This is a sexy subject in the church. In other words, there's a lot of people that have written books about this subject, there are a lot of movies that have been made on this subject. And listen to me, there's a lot of money that's been made on this subject. And that alone should caution us. That alone should probably put us in a posture, in a position to say, okay, if there's some potentially unhealthy agendas behind te teaching of eschatology, then we should make sure that everything that we're listening to and everything that we're hearing has solid and strong biblical evidence to support it. Because let's be clear, <laughs> out of all the predictions of the end of the world that have been made up until now, how many have been correct? Yeah, zero. Uh, let me give you a few examples. In 1666, right, 666, many predicted that the great fire of London that happened during those times was a sign of the end times. During that fire, 87 churches were burned to the ground. 13,000 houses were burned to the ground. But you know, as well as I, that 1666 came and went. In 1831, there was a preacher by the name of William Miller who attracted as many as 100,000 followers by preaching that the end of the world, as he knew it, would occur in 1843 with the coming of Jesus, with the second coming of Jesus. And if you would ascribe to this belief, this is where this stuff gets dangerous. If you would, if you would ascribe to this belief, then you would be carried off to heaven when that date arrived. 
But as you know, 1843 came and went, and he actually changed his prediction. He's like, oh my bad, I got it wrong. It's actually gonna be in 1844. And a lot of people who make these predictions do that very thing. Or maybe the name Harold Campbell, I'm sorry, Harold Camping rings a bell. Harold published a book in 1994 called 1994, where he used numerology to find codes in the Bible which show that the world was going to end sometime that year. But aren't we so thankful that the world did not end in 1994 because you know what happened in 1995, right? We were given the gift of eBay, right? Can we get an amen? I mean, most of the stuff we've purchased in this church was probably from eBay. God, thank you. Jesus, thank you for the gift of eBay. Well, after 1994 came and went, he changed his tune, like many of them do, and said, no, I actually got it wrong. It's going to happen in 2011, because he said that was 7,000 years to the, to the date uh, after the flood of Noah. But 2011 came and went. Or maybe it's the Maya calendar. If you were around December 21st of 2012, that was the end of this Mayan calendar, which had been recording time from 5,125 years before it. And that calendar was coming to an end on December 21st, 2012. This has got to be it. But it came and went. The last one, the last example I want to share has a different point. In a different example, something that I'm going to pivot off of this morning, so make sure that you hear this. In 1988, there was a man by the name of Edgar Wisenant, and he wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why the Church or the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1988. And then 1988 came and went. He said, okay, I got it wrong. 89 reasons why the church is going to be raptured in 1989. And he said this, listen to me, this is incredible, incredibly important. He said, all of my evidence points to September 1st of 1989. And then watch what he says. And if it doesn't happen, then I have no more answers. And I would conclude that Christianity's beliefs are in bad shape. Can you see where this can get dangerous? I'm not certain. Ah, Let me say that different. I'm not sure certainty should ever be found in our eschatology. Can I say it again? I'm not sure certainty should ever be found in our eschatology. Because when we communicate that something is going to happen, because the Bible clearly said that it was, and then it doesn't happen, I believe we're causing people to walk away from the church, and I believe we're potentially even causing people to walk away from Christ unnecessarily. Now, I'm not going to say, you know, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a position. I'm not saying that you shouldn't study the subject, because I think you should. But what we have to be careful in doing is we have to be careful that we don't make our opinions on this subject become doctrine. And in the past, that has happened so many times. And it doesn't mean that there aren't some things that we could say, man, we'll put our stake in that. We believe those things are communicated with certainty in the scriptures. And I believe there are three things specifically. These are the hills that I believe we should die on when it comes to the study of eschatology. These things are clearly communicated in the word of God. Number one, there is a second coming. Jesus is coming back and you need to be ready. There is going to be a final judgment and you need to be prepared for that. And the last thing I would say is there is a resurrection of our physical bodies that we receive a new spiritual body. Those are the hills that we die on. Everything else when it comes to eschatology should take a backseat to these three things. So it doesn't matter if you're premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, or maybe you're a panmillennial, which just means it's all going to pan out in the end, right? Thanks, somebody really appreciated that. (laughs) 
Listen to me. Nothing, nothing is as important and as urgent as what you do with the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Let me say it differently. Don't allow your focus. Don't allow your focus on tomorrow to derail your faithfulness today. And tomorrow could be the focus and too big of a focus and an obsession that some people have with this subject on how the end of the world is going to happen. Listen to me. Don't allow your focus on tomorrow to derail your faithfulness today. Can I remind you that our greatest motive here at Trace which means our greatest motivation, the biggest motivation behind everything we do here is to remove every obstacle to get you to Jesus. And I believe when we preach certainty in our eschatology, we create unnecessary obstacles. So with all of that being said, maybe my longest introduction to a sermon ever, but I felt like it was warranted. With all of that said, I want us to look at Matthew 24 today, a section of scripture that has elicited a lot of debate And I will show you my cards ahead of time. A passage of scripture that many have communicated is talking about end times, I'm gonna suggest is not. And I'm gonna suggest that everything that Jesus says in this particular passage is actually talking about the time frame between the time that he spoke this and the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD. And listen to me, if that's even possible, if what I suggest today, and I'm just suggesting it today, if it's even possible then the notion of a seven-year tribulation begins to weaken. And again, I'm not, listen to me, let me be clear. I'm not here to prove a point today. I'm not here to make you, you know, if you hold to a seven-year tribulation belief in eschatology, I'm not here necessarily to change your mind. But if anything, what I do want to show you is that there's not so much certainty as many have communicated when it comes to eschatology. And if we put our stake in something and we predict something that ultimately does not come true, aren't we setting the future of the church up for failure? And so if anything else, what I would want you to walk away from this conversation with today is understanding there's not as much certainty as maybe I've been taught on this subject in the past. And so if there's not a seven-year potentially, even if the notion of a seven-year tribulation weakens, then this idea that the temple in Jerusalem needing to be rebuilt also weakens. Now, some of you, if you've been around the church for a while, like I just, I just cussed at you <laughs> because that is a big deal for a lot of Christians. Millions of dollars are going to rebuild this Jewish temple in Jerusalem right now where a uh, Muslim mosque sits. And again, I'm not suggesting that everything that I'm going to say today is completely you know, right. I'm going to do my best to exegete the text and let the text speak for itself. But if we start to preach and communicate that these things must happen, And then they don't because we potentially preach with too much certainty where there should have been more ambiguity. We are setting the church up for failure. And on my watch, on my watch, I don't want to lead any Christian or anyone for that matter to ever arrive at a statement that sounds something like this. If it doesn't happen, then we have no more answers. And some would conclude that Christianity's beliefs are in bad shape, not on my watch. So, to kind of give us a frame of work uh, or a frame of reference, I should say, to begin with, I want to show you a graphic that represents a seven-year tribulation belief. And the only reason I'm really showing you this is because a lot of what we're going to read in Matthew 24 lends itself to a prophecy spoken by Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. And these two have to fit together in order for this to come together. And so here's a typical timeline of end times of what's going to happen. Right now, we would be living in this present age. And based on a revelation in Daniel, a prophecy in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, there's the belief that there's going to be 
a seven years of tribulation before the end comes. And sometime in between this era, the beginning of sorrows, the Antichrist is going to come on scene. And some say that there's going to be three and a half years of peace. There's a lot of debate on a lot of these things. Uh, that these three and a half years will be a time of peace. And at some point in this time, the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And then we have what's called the desecration of the temple or the abomination of desolation. We're going to talk about that today. And what a lot of uh, people have taught in the past is that the abomination of desolation, what happens in this moment is that the Antichrist will reveal his true nature and he will come and he will destroy the temple that's built sometime in this era, the temple in Jerusalem that's rebuilt, will be destroyed once again, the abomination of desolation. And then after that, there's three and a half years of just a living hell, to be honest with you, of what, the, what people have taught in this particular frame of eschatology. And there will be the great tribulation, and then Christ will have his final return. So to give you that as a frame of reference, um, I also want to bounce back into Matthew 23 for just a moment because Matthew 23 is going to set the scene for us and give us the context in which we read Matthew 24. You cannot read Matthew 24 without first going back to Matthew 23. So come, let me give you a fly over this and let, let me take a breath and let you know I'm gonna go through this fast because there's a lot of material and I'm gonna kind of hit this at a 10,000 foot view. And so if you want to go deeper on this subject, I would encourage you to go deeper, but I'm going to have to hit it at about five or about 10,000 feet. In Matthew 23, Jesus is railing. I mean, railing on the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders of that day. And if you're new to the church, I really think you should know this. Jesus saved his harshest words for the religious leaders of his day. Think about that. Jesus saved his harshest words for the religious leaders of that day, because even though they got all the laws right, they got love wrong. And listen to me, if you don't hear anything else today and you don't care about eschatology and whatever else, maybe you'll care about this. You can get all the laws right, but if you get love wrong, listen to me, you get it all wrong. You get it all wrong. And so Jesus was pointing this out to them and he was railing on them. And let me just give you a hint of what some of the things that he said. Matthew 23, he says, you snakes, he's talking to the religious leaders. You brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you, okay, just pay attention, you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue town to town. This happened between the time Jesus spoke this into motion in 70 AD when the Jerusalem temple was destroyed. And so upon who? You, Jesus is talking to them, so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Very important. Now there's been debate over this generation and what that means. If you do a quick word study in the New Testament and you look at the Greek word for this generation, it's the word genia. And genia in the context of the entire New Testament always means a generation, in other words, a lifespan that was often associated to about 40 years. That's very important. So every time we read the word this generation, Greek word genia, it is this generation, this, not something in the future, this generation, people living in this lifespan. Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Who's Jesus talking to? Come on, I need your help a little bit this morning. Who's Jesus talking to? Jerusalem. He's talking to Israel. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house has left you desolate. What's the house? It's the temple. Your house has left you desolate. In other words, it's been abandoned. In other words, the presence of God is no longer here in your temple. For I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Very important that you see, this is, this is first coming language. This is Jesus coming back for the first time after he's dead and resurrected. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now let's jump in to Matthew 24. And again, we, we're the ones who put verses and chapters to the Bible. This is gonna be spoken by Jesus seamlessly. So we jump into 24, <clears throat> excuse me, 24. Let me, I'm gonna have to get several drinks today probably. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to, the, to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Look how beautiful these beautiful temple buildings are. But he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Fast forward about, about 40 years, about a lifespan, about a generation. And we see the destruction of the Jerusalem temple by the Roman armies. And Josephus, a very popular historian of that day, not with any, without any Christian bias, said that not one stone was left on itself. And one of the reasons that none of the stones were left on one another is because when they burned the temple down, they burned it with so many um, uh, different tools. I can't remember. Uh, I can't, forgive me. There's a particular material they used that got really, really hot. And they would use that to burn things down. And it got so hot that the gold in the temple was running down through the stones. And they said there were so many killed in that area and during that time in the temple that blood and gold were running together. And so when it dried later, people came back to find the gold and they were literally tipping every stone over to try to get to every little piece of gold that they could. Not one stone upon another that will be, not be thrown down. And then the heading for the next phrase or the next um, passage of scripture that we're going to read is signs of the end of the age. Again, very important language. Stay with me. It's signs of the end of the age, not signs of the end of the world. And so I'm going to suggest to you today, the end of the age means something very specific, but it does not mean the end of the world. Verse three, as he sat on the Mount of Olives. Now, for those of you that kind of geek out on this stuff, I'm going to give you a little, a little jewel here. Jesus just came in and he cleansed the temple. He cast judgment on, the Jerusalem, on Jerusalem, on Israel, and then he leaves his presence. The incarnation of God leaves the temple. If you go back to Ezekiel and you read right before Solomon's temple, the first temple was destroyed, it says that the presence of God left the temple and rested on the Mount of Olives. Isn't it amazing how scripture often lines up? Here we have the incarnation of God cleansing the temple, casting judgment on Israel, and leaving his presence, leaving the temple, and he goes and sits on the Mount of Olives, just like Ezekiel. What happened in Ezekiel? The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things, what are these things? They're pointing backwards to something. Jesus, tell us when will these things, what are these things? The destruction of the temple, the judgment of Israel. That's what they're pointing back. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming 
and of the end of the age. Now, here's an incredibly important point. For those of you that are maybe King James fans, and you maybe grew up reading the King James Version of the Bible, the King James Version of the Bible did us an incredible disservice when interpreting this passage of Scripture. Because instead of the end of the age, it said the end of the world. Now, notice how much differently you would read the text before that and after that if the text actually said the end of the world and not the end of the age. But for what it's worth, and this is a side note, this is free, the King James Version of the Bible is not the best translation of the Bible because when it was written, we didn't have as much of an understanding of the Hebrew language, which is what the Old Covenant is written in, and the Greek language, which is what the New Covenant is written in. And if you look at the Hebrew language, we have about 12 words that we can use from our English vocabulary for every one Hebrew word, and about six words that we can use for every Greek word. And so you can imagine there are many choices that we could take in translating the text, but most scholars, almost all scholars today would say, that's a bad translation. The better translation is the end of the age. What is the age? I would suggest to you, based on what we've already read and what we're going to read, that the end of the age is the end of the temple. The end of the temple model, the end of the old covenant. God saying, I am bringing judgment to you. This is not how I'm going to operate any longer. And I'm going to do, because of your unrighteousness and your unfaithfulness, you are done. And he's casting judgment on Israel. And it's the, it truly is the end of an age. It's the end of the covenant that God had made with Israel. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Guess what, what we're reading right now? We're reading what many people would point to as the signs of the end times. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes. And all of this is recorded between the time that Jesus spoke this into motion and the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD. Big earthquakes that were recorded. Massive famines that were recorded. Famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to, there's the word, tribulation, and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets, all of this transpired between the time Jesus spoke this into motion and about 40 years later in the destruction of the Jewish temple. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the world as testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Well, right there, Aaron, there it is. There's evidence. No, Jesus is talking about the end times. Right? Then the end will come. The end of what? the end of the age, the end of the covenant that God had made with Israel. Let me give you several passages. I'm not gonna have time to go through these in detail right now, but I'll put them up here as, as a list. But let me show you several different points of scripture that mention this very same kind of language from the early apostles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul says, but these things were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul saying us, those of us that are receiving this now, we are the ones who the end of the ages 
has come. In Hebrews chapter one, verses one through two, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, this is the author of Hebrew, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The time of the apostles and the early disciples, they often referred to the time in which they were living in as the end of the age and even the last times. First Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Acts chapter 2, Luke wrote this in referencing and quoting from the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days... God says that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. When was the spirit poured out on people? Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost. And so Joel was referring to that, the prophet from the past, that those were the last days. Let's pick up in verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, this is Jesus again, So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, now we're gonna go back to an Old Testament prophecy, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So let's go back to that graphic really quick. The abomination, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, this is again what people would teach happens here. In the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist comes on scene. The temple at some point has been rebuilt. And the abomination of desolation is when the Antichrist shows his true colors and comes and destroys the temple again. The abomination of desolation. So they say. But I'm going to show you, and we'll jump back into Daniel for just a moment. And Daniel, I think I said seven earlier. I'm sorry, it should have been Daniel chapter nine. I want to show you from Daniel chapter nine and also Luke's account of what's called the Olivet Discourse. And so again, for those of you that geek out on this, the passage of scripture that we're reading right now is called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. And so let's jump back into Daniel chapter nine. This is where this prophecy, this is what Jesus just referred to. And so we're gonna connect the prophecy. No one understand this. And this is the angel Gabriel actually helping to define uh, Daniel's uh, vision to him. So this is Gabriel saying, this is what these things mean, Daniel. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, very important point. When Daniel's writing this prophecy, there is no temple. The Israels are in Babylonian uh, capture. They've been captured by the Babylonians and the Jerusalem temple has been destroyed. And so Daniel is prophesying during a time where there is no temple, but then we know another temple gets rebuilt later. Maybe not the temple, if you went back to that illustration, maybe not a future temple, but the temple between the time of this prophecy and when Jesus comes back. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, who's the anointed one, until Jesus, the ruler, comes, there will be set, and I'm not gonna get into all the, the math of some of these numbers. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in the time of trouble, After the 62 sevens, the anointed one, Jesus, will be put to death and will have nothing. Another translation says it in an interesting way, and it will look like he accomplished nothing. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus died and was crucified, did any of his disciples and apostles sit around thinking that he was actually going to come back? No. They didn't. It looked like he accomplished nothing. They were hidden away, and they're like, what do we do now? I think this text speaks into that. It looks like he accomplished nothing. 
The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Sounds like the destruction of the Jewish temple in the future or 40 years after Jesus speaks this in Matthew 24. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He, now talking about the Antichrist or the spirit of the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Now, this is where we jump into it. Nowhere in the Bible where you actually see the language seven-year tribulation. But here is where we get the number, one of the main texts in which we get the number seven for the seven-year tribulation. I'll read it again. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, seven-year tribulation. If you can pull that from the text, you're better than me. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice. This is where the three and a half gets split. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. This is where this teaching comes from. So this is where the seven-year tribulation view and perspective come, comes from. There's a seven-year tribulation in the middle is the abomination of desolation. This is what some would teach. I would not suggest that that's what the text tells us, and I'll show you more here in a second. Until the end that is decreed and is poured out on him. Now, in the synoptic, synoptic Gospels, let me get that out, uh, we also have another account of the Olivet Discourse from Luke. So let's let, jump to Luke's Gospel in Luke chapter 21, and I want to show you what he says when it comes to this abomination that causes desolation. He actually doesn't use the words, but when we put these two texts beside each other, something is revealed. Luke says this, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you know what happened in 70 AD? Jerusalem was surrounded by armies. You will know that its desolation is near. He doesn't use the word abomination that causes desolation, but it is the same text parallel to what we're reading right now in Matthew 24. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. What was written? That the Jerusalem temple would be destroyed and God would bring judgment upon Israel. Let's jump back into Matthew 17. Stay with me because it's going to get better. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your fight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be, what? The great tribulation. So is that the last three and a half years of this so-called seven-year tribulation? I'm gonna suggest to you that the text is not that clear, that that's what it's communicating. If I'm allowing the text to speak for itself, I believe Jesus is leading them up to the destruction of the Jewish temple, the end of an age, the end of a covenant, where of course with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that covenant ended with him, but a lot of the Jewish people of that time, most of them continued with Jewish sacrifices in the temple, and God was bringing it to, the, to a close. And great tribulation, Yes, it was. As I already mentioned, if you look at the evidence behind what was happening during the time of the destruction of the Jewish temple, it is horrid. It is horrid. It said that 1.1 million Jews were killed and that there was so much bloodshed that it was flowing, flowing through the city streets. 
And things got so bad. Listen to me. I hate to say this. I don't know if there are any kids in here, but just to kind of paint the picture that some of those that did survive were cooking their infants and selling it to people that were still alive. Great tribulation. Yeah, you could call the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD a great tribulation. For then there will be a great tribulation. Let me show you something that Josephus said. He said, the very view itself, again, Josephus is one of the greatest um, historians that we often look to that doesn't have Christian bias. The very view itself was a a melancholy thing. For those places which were adorned with trees and pleasant gardens had now become desolate country in every way. And its trees were all cut down. Nor could any foreigner that had formerly seen Judea in the most beautiful suburbs of the city and now saw it as a desert, do nothing but lament and mourn sadly at so great a change. For the war had laid waste to all signs of beauty. A great tribulation, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was. Make no mistake about it. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. Such has not been from, <clears throat> excuse me, from the beginning of the world until now. And no, will never, and no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Sounds like end time, sounds like a second coming, but hold on. Wherever the corpse is, the the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of when? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heavens will be shaken. This, of course, has to be the end of the world. I mean, look at that language, but what you don't know is if you go back and you read through your Old Testament, you will land in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 10, and you will read almost the exact same thing. In other words, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus is borrowing from beautiful prophetic hyperbole that was also mentioned in the Old Testament. Write down Isaiah 13, 10, you go back and you will read almost the exact same thing. It was judgment language. Beautiful metaphors this type of prophetic hyperbole. And Jesus is borrowing from Isaiah 13, verse 10. Pick up in verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Do we think Jesus actually came on the clouds or do you believe if you still think this is a future event that Jesus is gonna be cloud surfing coming in? No, it's hyperbole. It's prophetic language, beautiful prophetic language. Go and read Isaiah 19 and you will see that God, the presence of God was riding on the clouds. It's beautiful prophetic language that's just being borrowed from the Old Testament. Let me read it all again. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth. Who are those tribes? the 12 tribes of Israel. All the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds. What I believe is, uh, Jesus is talking about here is that he is going to gather to himself a new church from all over the world, not just one people group, but Jesus is going to gather to himself a new church from one end of heaven to the other. Jump down to verse 32, we're almost done. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. And truly I say to you, don't miss this, this generation. So now Jesus is going to encompass everything that has just been spoken in this one phrase. Truly I say to you, this generation, Ganea, the people living in this time span, will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Now, we may get through on the other side of this. Some of you got geeked out about a lot of this and you really appreciated it. Others were like, can we just talk about the grace of God? <laughs> like, what are, we, what are we doing? Here's what I would tell you. When we preach certainty in our eschatology, we are setting people up for failure. My motive today was not to preach certainty, but if nothing else, show you that there is definitely ambiguity. And so if we state claims in future events and we paint that picture for the future of the church and those things come and go like every other prediction, we are setting the future of the church up for failure. So can I end on the same phrase that I spoke to you just a moment ago? Don't allow, don't allow your focus on tomorrow to derail your faithfulness today. Should you study eschatology? Absolutely. The book of Revelation even uh, is the only book in your Bible that says if you study it, you'll be blessed. I'd love for you to have that blessing. Study it. But don't let your focus on tomorrow derail your faithfulness today. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for uh, all that you've been teaching me over the last several weeks. Uh, God, I, I pray that I came to this conversation and to this sermon with the right posture Father, I pray that for those, of the pe for those people that are in this room that may have had an unhealthy disposition in this subject, God, that you open their eyes to see that we need to be careful with it, that we need to be care careful teaching certainty where I believe there's room for ambiguity. And so, God, I pray uh, that you would take whatever needs to be taken from each individual in this room, whatever is a real healthy next step for them to take, uh, that you would allow them to, to see it clearly and to make that next step. And hopefully, God, my hope is that it will move them towards Jesus. And so, God, we submit all of these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.